We're in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 34 this morning. Let me just read it and pray. Then Jesus entered a house, and a crowd gathered, so that he, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call to him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are looking for you. Who are my mother? Who who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and mother. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we join the angels around you singing, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. And Jesus, as we read this narrative, what an awful day. A day where those who knew you for so long came because they thought you were crazy, and those who were challenged by you, declared you actually were evil. Help us to understand the words. Help us to understand how to follow you well. God, we just thank you for your presence and your spirit this morning. In your name, amen. This story can push against a lot of paradigms that you may have created in your life of how Jesus should respond, of how God should be, of the things that you expect. If you're sitting here today and you're like, I'm not sure I've created those paradigms, are there times in your life where you feel like, I need to explain Jesus in a way that might not be totally true of him, but it needs to be in a way that society might understand or believe a little more. Maybe a kinder, gentler, softer approach. It's within that realm that this kind of story can push against some of those things. And the truth about these verses today is that Mark connects this collision of not just doubters, but opposers. Some of them were new people who knew Jesus the longest. He, they were in his inner circle, his family. They knew things about him nobody else knew. They could say, I was there then. I was here when he did this. And then there are these people that came actually down from Jerusalem, this place of authority, to put him in his place. 
And in both cases, they no doubt experienced the drift that may have begun with some private wonderings, some private doubts, some private things, but it started to manifest itself into not just physical, but verbally declaring Jesus was crazy and filled with the devil. Are you with me? Are you all thankful that Dave assigned this passage to me today? Because I am. Because I got a few things to say. There's this temptation for many today in today's society to avoid hard things. To say, this feels uncomfortable. This feels like something different than how I imagine it to be. This is the paradigm I've created, so I'm going to avoid, avoid doing the difficult thing. And it actually kind of pushes in, us in a different direction. We avoid things because they don't feel safe. We avoid things because they feel different. Or different. There's something that happens when we've created a paradigm that when we say, this is wrong or this isn't what I expected, so therefore it can't be right that we start to drift. My wife is an amazing kindergarten teacher. She's not just amazing because she's a teacher and been one for 25 plus years, which is amazing in itself. But she taught kindergartners over Zoom during 2020. And there was many times I would walk into the room and she's like, Johnny, please put down the lightsaber. <laughs> is Johnny's mom there? Johnny's mom, can you help me out? Johnny, don't hang up. Someone needs to get Johnny back on the call. And she would call it her sunshine show, which she'd sing to the kids. And after 30 minutes of just giving and giving, she's like, when can I retire? And I'm like, seven more years, babe. <laughs> she's like, you're not helpful. I know, but it's the truth. <laughs> and so you tell me you're doing the math right now. Yeah. Let's just say my wife and I have aged differently. If you know her, you're like, she's like 27, right? Yes. But there's something that she has found to be incredibly helpful working with their kindergartners, and I think it's brilliant. Every single day in working with these kids who come in, and if something is hard or difficult, they tend to shy away. And she says to them every day, we can do hard things, and reminds them. Recently, there's a little boy named Scott. He was doing math. He didn't want to do it. And she's like, Scott. We can do hard things, right? And he's like, we can, but what about the things we just don't want to do? <laughs> She's like, good point. I need, a new, I need a new thing. So three or four times a day, she says to the whole class, we can do, and they say, hard things. So I thought we'd try it. Ready? We can do? Hard things. Oh, some of you believe it. <laughs> but there's this reinforcement within them that even when things come that you don't like, there's something you can do. And no doubt that's a minimization of this story, but that, I think that's where it starts. The control, the expectations. This morning I want us to take us this journey into three parts. We're going to take some time just to understand the story. Because it deserves that. And when we read scripture, we so often will read a story and we go, try to get so fast to how does this apply to the very thing I'm dealing with right now. And my encouragement, let's sit with the story a little bit and see what's there to understand the richness and depthness of God's word. And then let's see what the spirit reveals. And then we're just going to stare at Jesus for a bit because Jesus is worth staring at. 
And then we're just going to be honest about the spiritual drift that can take place in all of our lives and the absolute need to abide in him. So it starts with the story. Let's start with his family. The family had heard that there's reports of Jesus doing some things that were attracting huge crowds. And in many ways, this might be the moment as his mom and brothers, like we've never been more proud of him. Look at his popularity. Things are moving. But the things that he was drawing crowds about seemed to be things he was saying, things he was doing, and including exorcisms. They're like, wait, this isn't what we thought. And it says that Mark says they came to take charge of him. They use this word kind of like means to take hold of someone's hand, to lead them away, to arrest them. And they have a deep personal concern for Jesus, and they're combined with his lack of sympathy for his aims and his purposes. Pause just for a second about the humanity of Jesus, how hard that must have been. I mean, none of us like to be misunderstood. But to be misunderstood to the point where they're actually questioning your sanity, they're actually questioning the damage you're doing to other people and more importantly in their minds to themselves. You see, Jesus had left home. He was being raised as a carpenter's son. I'm guessing the business was somewhat successful because his dad had that as a reference point, Joseph the carpenter. And he had left this home in order to be a vagrant, to wander around with no place to actually rest his head. And I'm guessing that Jesus probably could have made a living at doing this. Because no sensible man, they must have been thinking, would give up those kinds of security of income and connection to do the things that he was doing. And when we have family make this kind of choice, we say, man, the most loving thing to do would be to go and make them stop doing this. You see, we connect loving things with interesting things, don't we? It's most often, I'm going to stop you from doing the thing that I don't understand and bring you back to me. And his friends, what about them? His disciples. Jesus is going after this with a fisherman or a few, some tax collectors, even though they were kind of reformed, a nationalist. I mean, this was not the A-team. This must have been embarrassing. In fact, they weren't chosen by other rabbis, and he said, come follow me. No doubt Jesus' brothers were not much help to the mother at all. Embarrassment came to the family as the attention he was getting. And the things that he was saying were definitely the things that he was doing. They were once on the inside and now on the outside. I can't help but think about his mom. His mother, who had got a specific message from an angel, saying, you will be with child. And there was no doubt in Mary's mind. It wasn't like, ah, was that a miracle or not a miracle? It was really clear that Mary had never been in a sexual relationship with anybody. No man. She was a virgin. And now she was with with child. There was no doubt. In fact, his name would be, he will save his people from his sins. I can't imagine Mary just going, I want to see how this plays out. And for her to get to a point too, by the influences of others, like Jesus has not chosen the path that God wanted for him. Let's take him away. See, in their minds, they had proof. They had proof and these three things that, that, you know, that we as people organize our life around. This is proof that Jesus had lost his mind. He'd thrown away his security. 
Why would you give up a good job? At least as they saw security. He had thrown away his safety. Why would you give up a good place to live? As much as they saw safety. And then the thing that I think proved it to them was, man, he showed that he was indifferent to the verdict of society. Like he just didn't, like he wasn't like trying to fit social norms. Their conclusion was no sensible person takes the risks he was taking. We have to stop this. And then there's these teachers of the law. Pharisees, people who were there to represent God and keep people in line and straight to do the things that God had wanted them to do. And it's quite possible that Mary and her brothers actually thought maybe Jesus was going to be one of these guys. Man, royalty. They walk into a room and there's just like this, whoa, those are the religious leaders. Maybe they thought if Jesus was in them that their lives would have been better. But here they are actually opposing Jesus and saying things to him if we stop and pause go beyond our comprehension. You see, in their minds, they had to squelch this man. They had to stop him, not just because of the words he was using, but it was the authority. I want you to hear this. It was the authority that he was showing over the darkest places in this world. And what are those darkest places of this world? Those souls of men and women that are being controlled and handled and overwhelmed by the devil. And even in those darkest of places, this guy was showing, I have authority in those places too. And that scared them. Because when we feel a loss of control, when we feel like, wait, nobody has that. And what do people think of us? And what's our end result? We have to come to squelch. So Mark makes this clear thing. They've come from Jerusalem the place of authority to squelch this man out in the villages. And yet one day, this man was leaving the villages to go to Jerusalem to squelch it all. But this was the setup. This was the makeup. This is what the conflict was about. But let's just stare at Jesus for a moment, will we? Let's just breathe. Because this is, can be intense. This text draws our attention to two things, to them and to him. The contrast could hardly be greater. He most likely was dressed in kind of homespun, homemade clothes, something he just put on because, ah, this is good enough. They were probably dressed in the most costly robes even imaginable. He was young, and they were old, older, I don't want to say old because if they were my age, whoo. So they were older than, than him. He was not the product of their schools and seminaries where they were steeped in oral law and the traditions of the rabbis who had gone before them. He loved them, but they loathed him. And in that moment, this Jesus that we're going back to these core documents to understand, like what is it, who are we really following? Here's Jesus' response. He simply starts to ask them a question followed by more questions. How can Satan drive out Satan? See, he ignored their what. I mean, this is brilliant. 
He's like, your what is like here. I'm speaking about the big picture, all these things. In fact, I know way more about Satan than you know. So instead of diving into your this, what, I'm going to go, here's the bigger thing. So he ignored the what, and he stayed focused on how would this even be possible? He took their accusations of being a man insane and was the most sensible one in the room. Even in this attack, he responded to their hate with help. If I can help you understand, we're moving somewhere. These claims of being out of his mind and filled with, the el- with, with evil comes these kinds of responses. It comes with parables, with stories. Not fighting, not debate, not I'm stronger than you, but questions. It's a question from the secular world where he simply says this. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If civil war is taking place, it has opened up its vulnerability to the enemy on the outside. Is that something you should intentionally do? Then he just gives another question, probably from the social world. If a house, something we can all relate to, if a house or a family is divided against itself, how can that house stand? They all knew dissension and division behind closed doors, closed front doors of a home cause a family to go into chaos. And then he talks about the spiritual world. And if Satan rises up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand. Like I mentioned, Jesus knew a lot more about Satan than his critics. Mark doesn't go into this, but I think Jesus could have said, Hey, let me tell you about something I saw. Long, 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 long time ago, way before you were thought of, before the beginning of this world, there was this guy named Lucifer. He was like the most beautiful created angel. And in his, his desire to be equal with God, and in his jealousy, and in his rage to be like God, God's like, no, 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 you can't do that. So he rallies up these other angels with him, and God casts him out of heaven, and he becomes Satan with his demons and his armies and his principalities. And Jesus is like, I was there when that happened. Where, where were you guys? So Jesus isn't moved by this because he already knows this. He knows this power. He knows the very thing that he's accusing him of, and he already has power over it and saw firsthand that when, when the enemy rised up, God just is like, no. That's the Jesus we're following, that when the enemy rises up within us, Jesus goes, No. And we're like, Jesus, I don't know if you can handle this one. And he's like, I already have all of these times. Let's handle it again. But then he gives us this undiluted warning. Man, that is a great under, I mean, that's a, I I shot really low there. This is not just an undiluted warning. This is Jesus' moment where he's like, there comes a time and you're like, enough. Truly, I tell you. People can be forgiven of all their sins, of every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Now, the enemy right now wants you to wonder, have I committed this thing that cannot be forgiven? That's how the enemy works, and that's how little care he has for you. We'll get there. If I answer too quick, you'd be like, okay, I got my answer. Just hang in there with me. 
If we are to understand what this drastic, deep saying means, we must first understand the circumstances in which it was said. I mean, this is basic biblical literacy and understanding. The context of what it was said in. Who said it? How would they have understood it? So, it was said by Jesus when the scribes and Pharisees had declared that the cures, the freedom, the grace, the power that he had brought were not from the power of God, but by the power of the devil. Okay? And the second thing, these men have been able to look at the incarnate love of God, the things that God wants to do for everyone to free us from, even in these moments of oppression and possession, the love of God and say it was actually the incarnate power of Satan. Do we get the specificity of this engagement? Jesus references the Holy Spirit. Here's a couple things I would like for you to remember as well or dive back into. What would one of the questions I think we always need to ask ourselves when we are reading scriptures, what would the original audience have even understood? What did they even know about the Holy Spirit? This was before the Holy Spirit came, 50 days after, so 50 days after the resurrection at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends on people and the fullness of all that he is has come. The power, the amazing, the gifts, the abilities. At this point, the audience would have understood this about the Holy Spirit. His role was distinctly two things. The Spirit revealed God's truth. If this was true, the Spirit would reveal it to me. And the Spirit enabled people to recognize the truth when they saw it. Okay? So he was saying, because you can't even recognize truth when you see it, and because the Holy Spirit, you are absolutely refusing the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. In fact, you're not even calling it the Holy Spirit. You're just calling it the devil. That itself is blasphemy. When we call evil that which is actually of God, that's the drift and the line that we're going down. Literally, Jesus was healing. He was casting out demons. He was forgiving from the grace of God. They said, what you are doing is satanic. God's grace and power is satanic. It is with that point, Jesus says, no more. One commentator states it like this. If a person has gotten himself into such a state by repeated refusals to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit that he cannot see anything lovely in Jesus at all, then the sight of Jesus will not give him any sense of sin. And because he has no sense of sin, he can't even be penitent. And because he is not penitent, forgiveness seems to be in question. Now, how much of this is up to us? How much is this up to God? And once again, if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, wait, if I somehow inadvertently, randomly committed this sin and I don't even know this, the answer is there is no way you have if you're actually wondering that. Because even if you've struggled, even if the enemy has done some things and you're like, God, I don't know what. I mean, there was a moment in my life when I got sick and I wasn't down with it. I'm like, God, 
I know you did these things and I still believe it, but I do not like your plan for my life. That song, you're never going to let me down. There was a moment in my life I'm like, dang it, you have let me down. And God's like, I know that's how you feel right now. But in 10 years or so, you'll think differently. I'm like, I don't care. So in that moment, I'm like, an enemy's like, I think you just did it. He's never going to forgive you. And I'm like, wait, what? Because that's the stupidity of the devil. He thinks he can mess with us like that. He does mess with us like that. I was a youth pastor for a lot of years. Some of the youth were saying, more years than you should have been. <laughs> like your jokes, Dale. Like, when did you stop caring? About 1990? And I'm like, yeah. But I was, you know, for like three decades, I was a youth pastor. They're like, your clothes. And I'm like, what? I have them on. All those things. One of the things that moved me when I was a young youth pastor around studying God's word and theology was what I call when the lights go off theology. We'd be at camp, and inevitably we're sleeping on one of those bunk beds that are like plastic covered, that in the middle of the night you like get up and you're like, you're stuck to it. And I'm like, so I got smart, and then I started bringing like sheets and blankets to camp as if I was like moving in, but I'm like, I just hate these mattresses. And inevitably, when the lights would go off, the questions would arise. No, no doubt there are sometimes like, hey, Dale, how can I get a girl to like me? And I'm like, brother, I don't have time to answer that question. Start with a shower. <laughs> Deodorant. Whatever. But a lot of the times, that's when the theology questions would come. You're like, what kind of, oh, that's cool. Your students wanted to talk about theology. Let me tell you how they would ask it. Dale, are you saying God forgives us? I'm like, yeah. Okay, let's say like you murder like a million people. Like you just, I'm like, a million people? Huh? I'm like, yeah, like you're just murdering all day long. And I feel like going, what's this fixation with murdering? I don't know. It seems like the worst thing you can do. You're just murdering. Like everybody, you murder, 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 murder. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I got it. And then at the last second, you're like, Jesus, forgive me. So you're telling me you can murder a million people and then still go to heaven? And I wanted to go, can we talk more about murdering and should I be sleeping in another room? <laughs> right? No. But I'm like, yeah, as, as we understand it, like, th th like, there's nothing. Like, yeah, we can. And they're like, all right, here's another one. <laughs> Let's say you've got like a billion demons in you. It was always like way over. It wasn't like one. It was like a billion. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a lot. You're saying Jesus could come and cast out a billion demons in you. I'm like, yeah. They're like, dude. And then inevitably we'd be go like, Dale, have you ever seen a demon? Is there here one right now? Can we have an exorcism? So the next night, I got smarter. And I said, guys, I just want to close our night in prayer. They're like, whatever. So I got up and I prayed over each of the 12 kids in the cabin. 15 minutes over one kid. You think I'm really spiritual. I feel bad now. And then 15 minutes over another kid. 
We spent like an hour and a half in prayer. They all fell asleep. And I'm like, boom, I'm going to bed. The next night, I'm like, hey, guys, let's end our day in prayer. No! You know, little Johnny's like, I'll close in prayer. God, thanks for the food. Amen. All right, demons. But inevitably, one of the questions they would always ask is, I've heard there's something that we can do and Jesus will never forgive us. Let me talk about that. Because that's what the enemy wants us to do, is to dwell on the things. And what I'm here to say to you is that for some reason in this moment, in this environment, in this story, Jesus had the amazing ability to see what people's intentions were. He saw the intentions of his family even coming to take him away, and he's like, hold on. But he saw the intentions of these people who their intent was, you are Satan, and we want everybody else to think you're Satan. So literally what they're saying is, we want people to make this about you. The enemy wants to throw you. The enemy wants you to wonder. And what I'm telling you this morning is that was a unique situation. I think in the evil of this world, when we're able to look at the things of God and sit with them for a while, and if we can get to the point where it gets so dark that we're thinking the actual things of God are actually evil, I think we're right there again. But God, Jesus is like, that's not the point with those. I want you to hear my grace. The devil wants you to worry about this. His very first temptation was what? Did God really say this? And with this one, he's like, you know, Jesus said this. But he's like, yeah, what's the context of that? And what's really going on? What's the condition of my heart? But here's the truth. What Jesus actually does want, he wants us to abide. Because abiding with him is the counter to any of this drift. That's what he's speaking to. He is speaking to and against the drift that happens in people's lives that brings them to a place so dark they think they're in the light, but they're actually in the dark. He says this in John 15. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Because I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will, it's a promise, you will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. It is God's desire, Jesus' desire, that you be people who bear fruit. Who bear, and when we bear fruit, it's not just for the benefit of others. It's also for your life and for others. So why is it just so essential that we need to abide? We need to counter the drift. We need to realize, I think, at least three things. The first one is this, is that spiritual bankruptcy seems to be right around the corner. It can come quick. And when we stop abiding and do things in our own strength, the spiritual bankruptcy actually starts creeping our way. This is, can be as easy as your concerns. You're concerned more about your reputation than your character. So as long as people are appreciating you, you kind of become indifferent to the Holy Spirit's promptings in your life. 
Second thing is, man, we, don't we all, we all have a capacity to sin, right? That hasn't left us. We are forgiven, but we have this nature and we have this capacity to be in rebellion against God on a regular basis. And when we abide, when we open up ourselves to God and we sit with him and witness and understand his spirit, man, the things I have found is that the closer I am at abiding with Christ, the less desirable sin even looks. Like, I see the end result. It's when we stop seeing the end result of those choices and sin, that's when it starts to go, oh, that's not so bad. But abiding makes us go, oh, that's not even an option. Not because I'm afraid of being a good or bad Christian. I just don't want that in my life. And I think the third thing that we say, man, we just have to, we're, we're in a spiritual battle. It's not like we can stand and nothing happen. It's like we have to walk up a down escalator sometimes. Keep moving with Jesus forward. Because when we stop, we're kind of just moving back. And it's not an act of will. It's not an act of power. Because it says, man, my gift of salvation is from grace. And there's a constant attack. So when we resist, when we think we can hang on to the things we once did and still be good. When I say good... I'm not talking about, like, forgiven. I'm just talking about, like, man, inwardly, we are thriving with God. I know when everything is difficult in my life, the enemy is having more of a say than when things seem good. And these aren't just about events. It's mostly how I'm approaching those events. So often when something bad happens to us, we're like, oh, the devil is making me do this. If you paid attention, there's bad stuff always coming. But God's thing is like, I want to help you as you go through this. How are you handling this? I'm with you in this. This doesn't have to overtake you. Because you know why? Because with Jesus, we can do hard things. Because he overcomes. How do we abide? Man, I think it's just about stopping, isn't it, sometimes? Stopping taking a breath, that in our times of reading his word, we hear from him. And in our fasting of food or things, we feel him sustain us. And in our Sabbath rest, he restores us. We don't do things to get favor with God. He's already favorable towards us. We don't do things to get God's attention. We already have God's attention. We do things to be united with him. And even in this moment of being pulled by his family and blasted by his critic, he recognizes there's just a few others that are in this room as well. And in that moment, he looks at these others around him and he says, then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother think this is what Jesus is trying to say. The door is cracked open for an opportunity. He addressed them. He's addressing them. But those who are sitting with him, he's like, the door is open. I just want you to know, you are my family. In fact, everyone who does the will of my father and abides with me, you are my family. How beautiful is that, that this Jesus who stands up to things looks at you today and goes, you are my family. You are my family. If you do the things, I will do it with you.
He has opened the door. You're all a part of me now. I and you, and you and me. God's forgiveness, no matter what the enemy is trying to tell you, even as men spiked his hands to a tree, we hear these words from Jesus, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness in that midst of opposition is the man we're following. In that, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. So much of human wickedness results from our own human weakness. But the Lord has mercy on us. He forgives us, pardons us, and provides salvation for us no matter what we've done. Because the man we're following, that's why he came to earth in the first place. And he never lost sight of that until it was done. I'm going to invite our band back up and David McKinney to come up as we enter into time of responding.